0: The Latter-day Lives Podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and Happy New Year. Welcome to Episode 194 of the Latter-day Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. I hope everyone had just an amazing Christmas and that the new year is treating you really well. Uh, It is good to be back. And this week, my guest on the show is just amazing. Kerry Muelstein is an author, he is an archaeologist, he is a professor who is well, well versed on uh, the Old Testament and ancient scripture. And not only that, but he is such a fun guy. He's really engaging and I was so grateful I got to have him in our home, and I just love Kerry. He's a fascinating man, and I especially wanted this episode to go out as we are beginning our study of Old Testament this year. And if you listen through this episode, you'll walk away so much more excited about the prospect of studying the Old Testament. Carrie is just awesome. And coming up uh, this week in my Latter-day life, it's different, but it's still pretty great. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, and here in the Latter-day Lives studio, live and in person... (laughs) Not over Zoom, it is my pleasure to have the director of the BYU Egypt Excavation Project, the vice president for the Society for the Study of Egyptian Antiquities, and a professor for the Department of Ancient Scripture and Ancient Near Eastern Studies Program at Brigham Young University, or as I like to call him, he is the Latter-day Saint Indiana Jones (laughs) Carrie Mulestein, welcome to the show. Well,
1: thank you. I hope everyone's still awake after uh, all of that. But but thanks. I'm glad to be with you.
0: How could everyone not be awake? That is so exciting. All uh, the things that you study, <laughs> and I mean it really. And it's funny because the picture that uh, our producer Gene sent me, you really do look like Indiana Jones. Uh, you know? You're out. Doing your studies, and we got all kinds of questions. But first, let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up.
1: Uh, All right, Sean. I'm, I'm from actually not far from here. I grew up in Sandy. Mm. Um, right on State Street, so anyone who knows the area, it's all become an auto mall now. Um, <laughs> yeah. But our horses graze where Southtown Mall is now, and, and I live where this auto mall is. I went to school, grade school, where it's now a Shake Shack. So it was just <laughs> all really, really rural, and uh, now it's completely overgrown with the uh, sh- you know, stores and cars and all sorts of stuff. I don't even recognize it when I drive past.
0: Yeah, we have listeners all around the world. So Sandy is about 20 minutes south of Salt Lake City. Yeah. So, yeah, you grew up in the Salt Lake Valley. Yeah,
1: I should have said Sandy, Utah. You're yeah. right about that. No, that's um, all
0: right. That's uh, w- So were you raised in the church?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've had a, a, a really blessed life. I, my parents... Uh, We're both uh, active in the church and taught me lots of stuff, and it was a rural uh, environment, but uh, a lot of wonderful, faithful people around that taught me lots of good stuff, so I just uh, always—I've heard lots of people say, okay, talk about when you were converted. I can tell you— Lots of times I remember when the Spirit really, really testified to me, and I knew that this was true, but I can't tell you a time when I didn't know it. Mm. Uh, I can remember in primary. I can remember incidents of feeling the Spirit and knowing it was true in primary, but none of that was the first time. I don't remember anymore the first time. I've just always uh, had that. So I'm fortunate that way.
0: So I got to know what you were into as a kid, because I assume you weren't (laughs) digging in your backyard, trying to find, you know antiquities and whatnot back then Where were
1: you uh, i know I, I was into being a smart aleck more than anything else uh <laughs> just wanting to have fun and seeing if we thought we could be funny or not and mostly i thought i was funny and probably wasn't uh I, I, now that i've dealt with a lot of uh you know young teenage boys and so on i i know how that is they all think they're really funny and they're usually not but of um, course yeah that was me too uh, I'm sure uh I liked outdoor stuff, and I liked writing. I always wanted to be a writer I guess my original thing when I was younger is I was going to be a fiction writer. I even sent some short stories into some magazines to see if they get published and stuff and, eh, some stuff got published in the high school magazine, but that's about as far as I got with that but uh, that's what I wanted is to do come back yeah right. yeah. yeah, I writing, still love writing yeah. I'm passionate for writing. Writing will come
0: back as a part of your story, we're excited yeah. to get to that as well. So a big part of our conversation is going to be about the scriptures. Yeah. Did you develop your love of scriptures at a young age, or did that come later?
1: Really, really young. Um, And and part of it was, uh, and and I think, I take comfort in this as a a parent, Um, I don't really remember my parents teaching me the scripture stories. I'm sure they did, but I think... Part of my passion came from, I would wake up um, in the morning, this is like when I was in middle school and high school, and to get ready for school, and it was pretty early, you'd have to get up pretty early, and I'd see, that my mom was working on breakfast, and I'd see the table was just full of scriptures and all sorts of other books of studying, and so, and I realized she had got up even earlier than she needed to to make breakfast, which was still earlier than I was getting up, so that she could study her scriptures mm. ahead of time, and somehow that just sunk into me that uh, that was something that was important, and so... I love the scriptures. I can remember in primary when I was like maybe about eight or nine years old and they were doing, you know, how you do these games in primary, like, uh, can you guess from these clues what this story is and so on? And there was one I couldn't guess and it was really frustrating. I mean, it turned out to be the Samson story, which is a great story. But I remember (laughs) thinking, wow, there's a story I I don't know. That's fantastic, right? I was so excited to find another scripture story I didn't know. Uh, and, And I just, it came alive. I loved it. Anytime I could learn a scripture story, I loved it, so...
0: I love that, because I think that we have kind of this conception that it's hard to get kids to fall in love with the scriptures, uh-huh. and now there are lots of ways for them to come alive that weren't around when I was younger, yeah. but uh, but I love that, that you had this love of the scriptures. I think that's just awesome.
1: You know what I, I think, and, and again, this goes back to my kind of liking to write and stuff, is that I think as humans, we love stories. And that's what your podcast is really based right. on, right? We sure. love stories. We love to relate to other people. That's mm-hmm. something that is really big for me is to try and help people relate to other people in the scriptures. And so if you tell the scriptures as stories, it, the doctrine needs to be in there and all that kind of stuff. But if you tell them as stories, will as people, we'll listen and learn all sorts of stuff if it's embedded in a well-told story. Yeah, so. absolutely.
0: And I think that the a lot of the new videos and things that have come out— Yeah. Clearly show that because, you know, I being a simple minded man, I'll watch the video and I'll go, oh, okay, I can now picture it. Then when I go back and read... It's a whole different thing. That's so. exactly
1: right. Yeah, so then don't ask me, because I'll start saying, okay, but they, they did that and that and that wrong in the video. But <laughs> Do the you Wrong really? kind of close. Do you pick things yeah. apart? Yeah, I, I, I try not to. It's an occupational hazard. When we first started watching the, the <laughs> Book of Mormon videos, um, we watched the first one, and after that, my kids said, Mom and Dad, we don't want to watch with you anymore, because we were like, "Okay, hey, now, Jerusalem, and the relation from that to that, Jerusalem is not right. And Anyway, yeah, and then after a while, we're like, ah, oh, we should just shut up and watch the movie, but it was too late. We'd ruined it for our kids.
0: Oh, so. that is really funny, Carrie. I love that. All right, so you finish up high school. Where did that take
1: you next? Uh, So I went to BYU, um, and actually was a journalism major. Uh, And then uh, I went on my mission. It was probably on my mission that I got kind of my grip of what I wanted to do because... uh after two two months my trainer went home and i ended up training and i had a companion who was a fantastic guy but he had some real health problems Mm. turns out he ended up uh having like 40 ulcers before he went home so he's having some real health problems but it meant that i I, probably about every other day sometimes a little more often than that we spent most of our time in the apartment as he was trying to recuperate and uh And we weren't really allowed to read anything other than like teachings of Joseph Smith and Jesus the Christ and the scriptures. So I read that stuff a ton because there was nothing else to do. In fact, probably like a lot of COVID missionaries recently, I I think we're going to have like this huge generation of scriptorians because I I had nothing to do but read that stuff. And I just read it again and again. And I fell in love with it. And I thought this is what I want to spend the rest of my life doing.
0: Yeah. So you come home from your mission. uh, What came next?
1: Uh, So that's when I decided uh, I wanted to teach seminary is what I decided I wanted to do and um i started going down that track and and two things happened at about the same time i uh, i someone came and taught um, a class i was taking an old testament class and and they were they just finished a phd at the university of chicago and they were kind of hoping to get a job so they had him teach and and i watched and the stuff they could do with the scriptures because they knew the ancient history so well mm. just fascinated me, and I realized I'm not going to be satisfied spending the rest of my life teaching this, wishing that I knew that stuff. Hmm. And so I thought, okay, it's not going to be enough for me. I I decided I'm going to get a degree in psychology. It was the fewest required hours to get a a, a degree. And then you can only teach institute if you have a higher degree, so the fastest way to a higher degree is a law degree. So I was going to get all that, get done quickly, teach seminary or institute, and and move on. Um, But I was really, really... I just changed my mind then that I needed to get uh, study stuff that would help me understand it. And at the same time, um, I, I was teaching, and I, I felt like I was a pretty gifted teacher, just came, kind of came naturally. And uh, so I was taking these classes to help you get into that, and um, and they watched me teach, and they thought, hey, he has some promise, so let's have him do this like student teaching for a week, we observe him at the end, and if he does well enough, then you get in this special program where you can teach while you're in college and make some money, and they help you through and stuff.
0: And I think um, we need to pause to remind... If you live oh, yeah. outside of yeah. Utah, parts of Arizona and parts of Idaho, the whole idea of a seminary teacher yeah. as a career is a different thing. But whereas here in Utah, they have release release time seminary and seminary, yeah. we've had a few seminary teachers, Stephen Jones we've had on and, and um, Corey Andrews and great seminary teachers. It's it's a full-blown career.
1: Yeah, yeah, full-time job. Yeah, and very so,
0: competitive too, oh, like very competitive.
1: There are like exponentially more people who want that job than they have openings for. So yeah. it's, it's hard to get. Um. So I, I taught this week that I was supposed to, and it went really well. I felt like I was nailing it. And the day came that they were supposed to observe me. And uh, I've never had such stupor of thought. Like I could barely put together a sentence. I, I couldn't talk. I couldn't think. I'd asked some students to kind of come prepared to share some stuff. They did a terrible job. It was terrible. And I got a letter um a few weeks later they said we recommend you don't go into a career in teaching and uh wow. yeah I, I mean it hurt but i kind of felt like well there's a reason for this because it <laughs> went so terribly and since then and he actually doesn't know this but uh the the person who he doesn't even i i feel fine sharing this because he doesn't even remember that that was me, but since then uh, I've had the person who had observed me and and uh, sent that letter not knowing that that was me it was stuck to me's me, like, so I'd like your advice on how to teach this and how to teach that right? so um so I, I i, I yeah I, I mean it was just that I wasn't meant to do it right so did you
0: know at the time- like when you were standing up there, did you feel like okay, this must be for a reason, or were you just in full panic mode?
1: Not when I not when I was standing up there. When I was standing there, I was like, I don't know why I can't think. I don't know why I can't string this together. And then it did start to become panic. But by the end of the day, I thought it through, and I thought, you know, that has never happened to me ever. That was hmm. a weird, unusual thing. I don't know what that was, but it was it was something different. Um, and, and I felt like it was meant that I, I wasn't going to teach seminary. And so I was trying to figure out what... I was going to do, Um, and uh, those two things happened about the same time, so I thought, okay, I'm going to start to to study this ancient stuff, and about that time, I was offered a research job by someone uh, that taught ancient scripture, and I fell in love with the research, and that's when I realized, uh, probably about four or five months after this bad uh, teaching experience, I realized, okay, it's not enough for me to teach seminary. I, I won't be happy if I can't research as well. And there really aren't very many places where you can teach the scriptures and do ancient research. There are two or three, right, the BYUs. And um, and so that's what I set my sights on and started working towards. And uh, kind of switched gears a little bit, started taking a lot of uh, ancient Near Eastern studies courses, got a minor in Hebrew and uh, that wow. kind of thing. So I made it so that my last semester... I went to the Jerusalem Center, the BYU-Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies on the Intensive Hebrew Program, first one they did to study. We studied the scriptures uh, there, but we also studied Hebrew there, and uh, that kind of changed my life. So so do you
0: recognize how unique that is? Like, when I hear you say, I loved researching ancient studies, I just feel like I need to live righteously, so I don't spend eternity studying ancient,
1: <laughs> you know, things like we we
0: had another we we have had one other scholar on um, Isaac Calvert is his name. He's been on the show before, and and uh, same thing. I was just so fascinated. Do you recognize that most people go, wow, that would be really intimidating?
1: Yeah, yeah. Most people don't want to take the ancient history courses, although I do find, since I eventually went on to to get my PhD in Egyptology, once you say ancient Egypt, then then for a lot of people, they're hooked on that, right? Okay, I'll study sure. ancient Egypt. Everything else, forget about, but pyramids and mummies, I'm good with, right? People people <laughs> kind of like that. But yeah, I mean, we those of us who are really into this, kind of die hard into this, recognize that we're, we're kind of the, the nerd geek guys on this thing right that we're a different breed (laughs) but i think Uh,
0: it's so neat that you have that skill set and that you have the mind to be able to do this you know that uh, you have that appreciation for it so now you're in this world of research and everything else institute is left far behind the idea of seminary or institute or whatever which by
1: the way i think it's a fantastic career i want to be clear about that it just wasn't the career i was supposed to take yeah.
0: For sure. No, clearly you have, I mean, yeah. you're where you need to be, which is yeah. it's just awesome. So as you're doing this research, uh, when you brought up the Jerusalem Center, which has, has been mentioned multiple times here on the show, we've had a few guests who have been there. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how special that place is, because everyone okay. who talks about it just lights up. Like yeah. It's a really important place. I'd
1: be happy to, and, and, uh, and I can share it through a, a couple of different sets of experiences I've had there. It is... Uh, and I won't share the whole story, although you should get, I could recommend some people that could come on or some, but you can, if you can get the whole story, it's a miracle that that place exists, an mm. absolute miracle. It's a series of miracles between President Hunter and and Elder then Elder, then later President Faust and uh, President of BYU at the time, Jeffrey R. Holland, and these guys. Mm. I mean, miracle after miracle after miracle happening to, to make that place happen. I am absolutely confident that God wants that place be doing what it's doing, and it's uh, it does for people what has become my my passion, like really my passion in life, which is to help um, the scriptures uh, and the gospel come alive. So I'll, I'll just give you a couple of ideas. Plus, I really like it because that is where I met my wife as well. But um, <laughs> so it's it's a good place in a number of ways. But I had this experience as a student. And then I've since gone back to teach twice there for two different times for a year each and brought my whole family with me. Mm. And it is the ideal teaching situation to make this happen as a teacher. Uh, so I still re- still remember my first day, and I-, I knew the scriptures fairly well. This is my last semester at BYU. I, I took five years because I changed gears and-, and did all sorts of other stuff. So I know stuff fairly well. And in fact, uh, and this is another fun story we can tell in a minute if we have time, but uh, I, I- uh, so this ends in June, right? And in August, I'll start teaching, and I'll be in a graduate program then, and I'll start teaching Old Testament at BYU. So, I mean, I'm like literally a month and a half away from teaching these wow. classes that I'm taking yeah. right now. Um, so I, I know this stuff fairly well at this point. Um, I've had several years of biblical Hebrew and all this stuff. And still, on our first field trip, we go out, um, and I, I remember this, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Our teacher pointed out, you're standing at this place, it's a crusader, where the crusaders had set up a citadel. But you look down this valley and over at this hill, and you can see some ancient ruins over there. Mm. And he says, okay, that's the city of Gibeon. Let me tell you two stories that happened there. That's the city, and I'll give you the short versions of these stories, but that's the city where um, uh, Joshua came to fight there and, uh, and needed uh, to be successful in this battle, so we asked God to have the sun and moon stand still, and it does, right? And then he says, it's also the city where Solomon is praying, and he has the vision where God grants him wisdom. And I can still remember this feeling, like, so powerful, the Spirit's so powerful, where you suddenly realize, like, I always knew those stories, but wow, those happen right here. Like, I'm looking at where they happen, and suddenly Solomon was a real person to me. Wow. And Joshua and all the people in his army were real people to me, and the places were real, and suddenly I could apply the scriptures, Joshua and Solomon and all the things happening to them, to my own life so much better because I'm a real person. I know that. And if they're real people, then they're, you know, I know they have these shared worries and concerns and loves and excitements and, and it becomes real. So that's, uh, that was a passion of mine already, but it become much more passionate then. It's part of why I love to go back and teach. I'll go again and teach there sometime to help others. And I take tours there and Egypt and places because I love to help people feel how real that is. That's that's part of why I love to teach at BYU. It's part of why I'm, I'm just starting my own podcast. We don't have it up yet, but hopefully in a month or two, called The Scriptures Are Real, um, because, I, I and maybe you can even tell from how excited I'm getting, but it is my passion to have mm. people say, oh my gosh, these are real. And to say, if I knew this detail or I saw this thing, oh, that scripture, that story comes to life for me, and now I understand how I would react if I were there. And now maybe I understand how that applies to what I'm going through right now. Mm. When that happens, then we've, we've started to really hit something that should happen in life.
0: I love that. And I feel your excitement for it. I feel your energy. And I think it's so beautiful. You mentioned you met your wife yeah. uh, there. at the Now, we didn't date there. So. We're,
1: you're not supposed to date there. And I'll be clear, we didn't. In fact, she didn't even like me. You're not supposed to date when you're there? No, no. And there's there's good reason for that. It can get messy, right? Because uh, you're with these, like, right now it's only 80 students. When we were there, it was about 140, 160. But that no, was about 180. Pretty confined space. Yeah. So yeah. you, you eat together, you study together, you're in the same class. You can't be in a different class. You mm, go to church together. That makes everything. Sense. Yeah. So yeah, it can it can that. get nasty if something starts and then something stops. And uh, yeah, so. but were the
0: were were the were the seeds there while you were there?
1: Well, it was for me, uh, but not for her. I realized um, that this was the kind of person I've been looking for all along. Um, but she was my family home evening group leader. Back then, we call a family home evening mom. You're not supposed to do that anymore. But anyway, she was. But I felt like her lessons were just a little bit tame, maybe a little boring. We could even say that since <laughs> she's probably not going to listen to this. Um, and my roommate, who also teaches at BYU with me now in the same department as me, he and I, um, we were still smart Alex, right? So we took it upon ourselves to liven up family home evening, and we did, oh, no. which I think everyone else appreciated, but I don't think she appreciated <laughs> So and she still has to put up with this. At family, even just tonight, she had to put up with it at family home evening already tonight. Um, as I gave her a hard time about being too slow on Rummy Cube and stuff. But anyway, uh, so uh, yeah, she wasn't a big fan. It took me a little, it took me a bit of convincing. So we won't tell more of the story, but just to give you an idea, we we did get engaged eleven days before she was supposed to go into the MTC. So uh, that was whoa. It, it came down to the wire. I was working pretty hard to pull this one off, but I, I we pulled it off, and I'm happy. Uh, ever since and she probably is most days
0: (laughs) how long have you been married now
1: uh 27 years that is
0: fantastic what a great story yeah so obviously this place is special for a whole lot of different reasons yeah yeah in Um, fact
1: we have it on video she happened to be videotaping having come into the, the center uh when we met and so we have on video the first time we met, and 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 we could, because of that, we can see exactly what stare it is. So it's been kind of fun to take my kids there and say, you see this step right here, <laughs> this very stone, this is where I met your mom.
0: This is so, where
1: your mother and I took a big step. That's how? Oh, oh. A literal step. <laughs> it right. literally is a, <laughs> I, the
0: first step of our relationship. I am
1: ashamed I never thought of that pun. <laughs> I, like that. I am going to have to use that. All right, that's right, you've given me good fodder.
0: Okay, so you come back, um, and what was the plan? I mean, was the plan, "Hey, I'm going to do research." You, you got to make money.
1: Yeah.
0: Was it, "I'm going to teach." I'm going to. Yeah, do Yeah, I research wanted to get a job grants?
1: teaching at. Um, well, it became a little complicated after about a year. Um, so I wanted to teach at BYU. Is what I decided teach in the department that I am now in. Um, we got married a year after we got back, and we went on a on a honeymoon for another long story. Both because I had a. A companion I was really close with that was at BYU-Hawaii, and, and I had a brother who was serving his mission there, and his mission president, who happened to have been the bishop and stake president I grew up with, mm. agreed we could meet him on our honeymoon, because uh, my wife had never met him before. Oh, that's great. Um, so not many people go to his own conference on their honeymoon, but we did, so... Um, <laughs> Anyway, so we we ended up going to Hawaii uh, on our to BYU Hawaii specifically on our honeymoon, and while we were there, we just really had the distinct feeling that that's where we should teach, and it's turned out I've been able to do both, so that's great. But f- for a while, it was confusing. I'm like, oh, I thought I was supposed to teach here, but I'm also supposed to teach here. How does that work? Well, it works. But um, so yeah, I wanted to teach it at uh, uh, at BYU and Provo, and and the story of how I got started is actually kind of a little bit funny. So. Mm. Um, before I left, I was taking a, a Hebrew class and and a Ugaritic class. You, you probably, I mean, it sounds like you are an idiot or something, but Ugaritic is an ancient language from a t- place called Ugarat, not too far from from uh, Canaan. But anyway, and I,
0: I've literally never heard. I'm, I've heard yeah, of no Canaan, one has, but I've yeah. never heard of the
1: language. Uh, only weird people have, but I've I've heard of it. So <laughs> I love it. Um, so I am taking this Ugaritic class with another guy who's teaching part time at BYU while he's working on his master's. And I said, how does how does that happen? Because I am thinking, okay, in about six months, I am going to be. In, in the master's program here. They used to have a Master's of Ancient Near Studies at BYU. We don't anymore, but um, that's what I was applying for and, and, and got into. And he said, oh, you should just talk to the department chair of ancient scripture and uh, see if you can uh, get a job teaching while you're working on your master's. Um, and we don't do that anymore either. You have to at least have a master's and be working on a PhD to, to teach yeah. now, but— Back then, you could. I said, oh, great, but I only had like two weeks, and then I went to Jerusalem. So I didn't get the chance to do that. I was really kind of disappointed. And then this department chair, his name is Stephen Robinson. Uh, he, he was a fantastic New Testament scholar, just a great guy. He came out to visit uh, the Jerusalem Center. I was like, oh, this is meant to be. I need, I need to go talk to him. So I, I asked him, he did a fireside, and then I said, could you just give me 10 minutes? And he said, sure. Sure. And I talked to him and I said, "I'm, I'm, I've been now at this point. I've been accepted into the master's program. I'd really like to teach Book of Mormon. That's what I was suggested. I asked him if I could teach. Really like to teach Book of Mormon um, uh, for you while I'm teaching." And and he just looked at me and said, "We're full. Uh, all, all all of next year, we've already decided who's teaching. Sorry, we don't have any openings." And, and, he, that, and that was it. He didn't say, come again, try anything. I mean, it was just done. It was over, right? And I was really kind of crushed, but I thought, oh, well, what can I do? So I go back, and when I'm done with the Truesome Center, and I have to get rehired into my research job that I had as a research assistant. And so I'm in filling out the paperwork in the college offices, and Stephen Robinson walks out of the dean's office. Unbeknownst to me, he's in there because uh, one of our teachers had – uh, been asked to work on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he'd ask, can I have a course relief? And so he's in to get the dean to approve hiring a part-time teacher, but I don't know that. So I'm I'm walking one way, he's walking the other way, and he stops, and he kind of looks at me, and he says, didn't you come talk to me at Jerusalem? I'm like, yeah, I did. He said, come with me. I'm like, okay. And we walk across <laughs> oh the hall gosh. to his office, and his associate chair is in there, Dennis Largie, who would later be my department chair when I'm hired. But anyway, his associate chair is in there, and he says, Dennis, this is Oh wait, what's your name again? I'm like, it's Kerry. <laughs> He's like, this is Kerry. He's going to teach Old Testament for us this fall, and I was like, I, I'm what? what? But that's what it was. He just he had like three weeks to fill a position, didn't know who we happened to cross paths. He happened to remember, and I got it. And from then on, it was just a, however good your student evaluations are, maybe you can teach again for his next semester, or maybe. Not. And I, for three years, I taught all sorts of courses for them because my wow. classes were going well enough. But
0: that is amazing. Uh, and I, so you've been at BYU.
1: That was ninety four. That was straight
0: through ever since.
1: No, um, I, I then left and did my PhD in Egyptology at UCLA mm. um, and taught institute there. And uh, then I, uh, from there, I went straight to teaching at, at BYU Hawaii in both the history and the religion departments. Um, and then they, so you did end up at BYU Hawaii, yeah, all that. yeah, for three years. And we decided we were going to stay there. In fact, when we got the job offer from Provo, we loved it so much we. We decided no. We're going to tell them no, and then my mean wife said, "Well, we ought to pray about it." And,
0: uh, <laughs> Darn it! Yeah. I hate I don't that.
1: know why she did that. <laughs> yeah, and so so we came to Provo. So
0: you know, it's only it's only through prayer that someone goes from L.A. to Honolulu mm-hmm. to, to Provo. Yeah, yeah that's the yeah. only yeah. way. Yeah, it's it's only through divine intervention that you yeah. leave that you leave Honolulu to go to to go to Provo. So yeah. that is awesome. What a great journey. So, I want to hear a little bit about some of the field work you've yeah. done. Because well, to a, me, that sounds just fascinating.
1: It's a great segue because that's actually almost the same story of how I got into archaeology. So, my, my PhD kind of uniquely, typically, you, you focus in what we call philology, which is the study of language and texts, or archaeology. And I wanted to do language and text, that's what I'd always done. Um, And I I went to UCLA because one of the best, I mean, he's probably tied for the top two or three philologists and Egyptian language specialists Mm. in the world was there. He was fantastic to study with. But right before I I left, he accepted a job in uh, Switzerland. Um, And he kept coming back, actually, in some ways just to work with me and help me finish my PhD. So he'd keep coming back to work with me. But it also meant that I needed to work with our new hire, who was this fantastic archaeologist and i really got into that and so i ended up doing a, a really uh, what would be two people's worth of tracks in one in philology and one in archaeology but i never wanted to do archaeology because uh, it's really hard on families you're just gone too much yeah and that so makes i just sense. decided i'm not not going to do archaeology you can't
0: do archaeology from home yeah, yeah yeah
1: it's actually pretty hard uh, i mean <laughs> You can do some archaeology at your home, and it's surprising what you find when you dig through your kids' toys. But um, <laughs> but no one wants to read about it. So you're not going to
0: get paid for it. Yeah, so. yeah, that's right. Yeah.
1: So um, so I'd been at BYU about a year and a half, and uh, this great scholar there, Wilfred Griggs, came up to me and he said, uh, "I'd like to talk to you. Uh, I- I'm I've been directing this excavation, and I knew about. I've been directing this excavation in Egypt for like twenty something years, and I don't want it to die after me. Would you be interested in uh, in taking over after me? Wow! And uh, and I thought, no, I'm, I don't want to do archaeology. No, and so I told him, yeah, I don't think so. But let me let me think about it. And then I made the mistake of going home and praying about it <laughs> once again. Yeah, it's just this bad habit I have. And so I came back the next day and I told him, uh, yeah, I'll do that. And uh, awesome. it's been fantastic he that was uh, 2007 2011 he retired and i took over as director and we've had a good 10 years of doing all sorts of great stuff there so so,
0: so what practically what does your role with that entail
1: so, uh twofold the the majority of my time that I spend with it is really very administrative. Like uh we're only there for a while. Like Where
0: is the site?
1: It's in a place called the Fayum. It's a uh, it was an inland sea that it dried up. It's it's a little bit like Salt Lake. It was a huge inland sea that then has dried up and now there's just one salty lake there. Um but it's a really really fertile area. It's about an hour and a half south and west of Cairo. Um, that is, if if Egypt, you know, there's the saying that Egypt was Rome's breadbasket, but the the mm-hmm. Fayum was the breadbasket of Egypt. It's just this huge, really, really fertile area. Um, and uh, so I spend a lot of my time administratively. You know, you have to fill out permits. You have to raise funds, you, you know, do all sorts of stuff to make it possible to work there. Then you have to oversee the analysis and make sure this stuff gets published and you work with data and how can you, you know, what are you get enough servers to keep this stable and make it available to everyone just all sorts of stuff that isn't the fun part but but then you get the fun part where you go there and uh and you excavate so you know i hire workers i bring i select a, a team a lot of people from byu but we have people from all over the country and even the world that come and work with us and uh and we've got two uh, really great things at that site there's a there's a pyramid um Built by the, uh, his name is Khufu, he's the first ruler of the fourth dynasty, I know you wanted to do that, know that, but he's the guy who figures out how to go from step pyramids to what you'd call true or smooth-sided pyramids, and then his son builds the Great Pyramid. So this is one of the earliest pyramids, yeah, it's one of the earliest pyramids, and I think as we, we come to understand it better, it kind of changes the way we think of pyramids a little bit. Um, so that's from about 2,500 B.C. So this is like 4,600 years, or about 2,600 B.C. So it's about 2,600 years old, right? We also have this cemetery there that's a Greco-Roman period cemetery. So from about 300 B.C. to about 600 A.D. Um, that is just full of lots of, of burials, right? Uh, some really, really nice mummies, a few of those, and then a lot of poor man's attempts at mummies. But uh, So when you think of Egypt, you think of pyramids and mummies, and that's literally what I excavate. And it's just fun to... Dig in the sand and see what treasures it has in store for you. But it's, when I say dig in the sand, it's a lot more, you know, you 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 like uh, almost everyone else kind of make this. You go, oh, you're like Indiana Jones. Uh, and that's absolutely true as long as you think of Indiana Jones like... Laying out a thousand little grids of string, and using <laughs> yeah. little brushes and little trowels, and writing down everything you find, and taking a thousand pictures, right? And and only very very rarely do you pull out the bullwhip. So, um, but uh, it, so it's 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 can be fairly tedious, and yet so exciting when you find something cool.
0: So, all right. So for you personally, mm-hmm. just for you, what's the coolest thing? in the past 10 years that you have pulled out of this site?
1: So for me, the coolest thing is not anything I would pull out um, uh, because it's uncovering um, elements of the pyramid that aren't going to stay there. Okay. But, but fair. That if, so uh, as an example, and again, this this is just shows how weird and, and nerdy and geeky I am because I'll say it's exciting and you'll say whatever. Um, and to be clear, my wife has found who spent one week doing an excavation in israel found a more cool object than I've ever found, but because she found a four horned incense altar that was a philistine four horned incense altar, which is really cool but um for me, we uncovered some holes that we knew that there had been two holes next to this pyramid um but the way they'd been described they'd been found before, but the way they'd been described was a little bit different than what they actually ended up being. Uh, But as we were kind of re-excavating that area and and, and extending how far it had been excavated, we found two more and realized that it was uh, holes, uh, post holes for Mm. a, a covered pavilion. Uh, which, again, is interesting because, remember, I told you this is the first guy to kind of do pyramids the way they end up being the classic way. And there's a number of classic features of, of a pyramid complex. There's the pyramid and a little temple right next to it and a causeway that goes down to a valley temple. Like That's where the Sphinx is, is down by a valley temple from this big pyramid up way up on the plateau for Giza. Um, and there's some elements there that you kind of try and figure out how did these elements ever come to be. And I, th- I think I've been able to demonstrate. In fact, the article just came out last week, but um, I think I've been able to demonstrate that these little four post holes were the first try at building what will become some pretty cool um, sacrificial uh, temple features of pyramid complexes in in later ones. I think this is the very first uh, iteration of it. And and so it's kind of fun to say, okay, when you think about pyramids, this is probably the first time this element is happening and it's innovative. uh, Anyway, that's been fun for me.
0: How could anyone not find that fascinating? I am fascinated yeah. by well, it. Well,
1: most people aren't fascinated by finding post holes in the ground, but but
0: when you put the context,
1: well, see to that's it, the, that's the fun part.
0: The context is, yeah, a post hole may not be exciting, but yeah. the fact that there could have been an altar and that there could have been, yeah,
1: well, know. and we found the remains of an altar. Well, they found it before I was part of the excavation. Um, that's uh, but the remains of an altar there and uh, Stella that had the name of the king on it and stuff. So yeah, it's it's pretty fun stuff.
0: How often do you go to Egypt now?
1: Uh between once and twice a year. So some years once a year, some years twice a year. I mean last year was COVID, so not at all, but this year I've been I went for a month. So
0: And are there people there all the time?
1: Well, so they don't excavate when I'm not there. Okay. Um but we do pay for some guards to be there to guard the sure. antiquities the whole time.
0: That yeah. is See, and how can you say that that's not exciting? It sounds... Yeah. Oh, it is exciting. So exciting. Yeah. Uh, but the, I do understand The it.
1: toothbrush part's not as exciting when you get down <laughs> to that kind of... Uh, but it's 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 fun stuff.
0: Oh, I just think it's amazing. Let's talk about your books. All right. Let's talk about the books that you have coming out, because so, I want to hear all about them.
1: Well, that's, that's again, my my passion is um, helping people understand the scriptures and, and having the people and in the, in the stories and the scriptures come to life for them. And so I've tried to write about that a bit. Like, I, I, my favorite thing I've ever written didn't do very well, and it was my first publication, didn't do very well. It's out of print now, but it was about seeing God's love and mercy in the Old Testament. It's a book called uh, Return Unto Me. Um, but I've done some, like, commentaries and things like that on the scriptures, but but recently I've been trying to do a little bit more and getting the scriptures to come to life for people. So um, I'll talk about uh, two books who, that... One that just came out, like very recently, one that came out almost a year ago and one that's about to come out. So the one almost a year ago, uh, uh, so as an Egyptologist uh, and also, so I have degrees in Hebrew Bible and in Egyptology. Uh, so one of the places that I do a lot of work on is the Book of Abraham. Mm. Uh, and uh, and I uh, uh, that wasn't my original intent. Uh, in fact, I wanted to avoid doing stuff on the Book of Abraham. I really loved the Exodus period, so I was going to do both biblical and Egyptological research that focused on the Exodus period. But so many people have had so many questions about the Book of Abraham that I thought, well, I need to at least learn. And this wasn't until partway through my PhD program. I thought I need to at least learn a little bit about what they're asking. And then I got kind of hooked um, because Mm. it was really fascinating and because I found a lot of people who really wanted help with this, and and I was kind of a sucker for helping them. And, And so that's become over two decades of really intense research now. Um, but of course, if you're going to study the Book of Abraham, uh, you've got the Abrahamic Covenant is in there. right? Um, and so I recognized how important that was way back that first semester I taught wow. at BYU because I was teaching first half of the Old Testament. Abrahamic Covenant is important. So I'd been studying, uh, between that and, and, and the Book of Abraham, been studying the Abrahamic Covenant for a long time. And then uh, President Nelson just keeps making it clear we should really know something about that. So I wrote a book called um, "Let Let" or God Will Prevail um, about the Abrahamic Covenant. And I love that because I have people that come to me and they say, all my life I've felt like I should understand the Abrahamic Covenant and the promises made to Israel and the gathering of Israel, and I don't. And now I get it. And mm-hmm. it's changed the way I read Scripture. And it, it will. If you really get this, it will. you'll see it everywhere in Scripture, and it will change the way you read Scripture. Wow. And when someone says it changes the way I read Scripture, then... My light goes on, I'm a happy boy, right? That is awesome. Um, So that's one of the things, because it was an element that I knew people wished they could understand, and they didn't know how to understand it, and so I thought, I can help with that. Uh, So now that I've said that, if you think of a topic that Latter-day Saints feel like they should understand, but they don't, and they don't know how to get there, then we get to Isaiah, right? So, um, wow, yeah, yes, yeah. Everyone has a guilt complex because we're told you've got Christ says study Isaiah, and we study it and we go, uh, I don't know what does that mean. So I've just barely had come out a verse-by-verse a verse commentary. So it's got a guide and an introduction that says, here are tools for studying Isaiah, but also let me take you to it, through it verse-by-verse. Verse. So wow. it's like 400-and-something pages, but um, but it's not really that big. A lot of it is white space. What it is, is um, it's is two columns. And on one column, the left-hand column, you've got the King James Version of Isaiah. And and so then there'll be like one verse or two or three verses. And on the right-hand column is my commentary. And so that's that's the dense side. The other side has a lot of white space so that you can get both in the introduction the tools, and I also have all these like historical, contextual things, and, and uh, Book of Mormon highlights to help you understand it. So this is going to help you understand both Isaiah and the Book of Mormon. Um, so you've got the the squeal, skills that you learn and then kind of verse-by-verse explanation of here's what this symbol is, here's where this means geographically, here's some language elements. And, and my goal was twofold. Um, one, I, I, there were tons of great LDS commentaries on Isaiah, but None of them went through every single verse. There's always stuff that people would ask, okay, well, this commentary was helpful. And and they're written by dear friends of mine who uh, have helped me understand Isaiah. They're fantastic. They're they're great. I'm not denigrating them. But uh, I just wanted to fill, they did the the first work, and I just wanted to fill some holes, right? Um, So. People would say, "Well, no one talked about this verse." So I thought, "Well, I, I want it to be so that there's not a verse that people says no one talked about this. I don't understand what's going on in this wow. verse, so I want to so explain literally every, every verse, verse in Isaiah." Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll say, "Okay, this this is the explanation of verses three through six right, because right, all sure. those verses yeah. go together." Right? That makes sense. Um, And the other thing is that, for the most part, Latter-day Saints uh, commentators or scholars, whatever you'd like to say that, tend to focus on, here's the Latter-day fulfillment uh, or the millennial fulfillment. Mm. And I find if you understand the original context and the original fulfillment, then you actually can understand those, those later fulfillments better. So, and but we don't have that happening in uh, a lot in most uh, existing commentaries. So, this helps you understand the original stuff so that then you can understand the latter day stuff so you understand how to apply it to you. And I try and address all of those in, in all the parts of the commentary. So,
0: wow, I could That's have, just come out. So, I remember when I taught gospel doctrine getting into Isaiah and just trying to find concepts that I could get my head around. And I'm not proud of it, but. When I go through my Book of Mormon study, it's always, hey, it's Lehi, it's his family, it's his, uh, gotta
1: it's get Isaiah. through Isaiah. Okay,
0: yeah. now we're back into the story, Yeah, and I always feel like it's trudging through mud. That's you what know? most people feel. And it's, so I think that... But see, is, I light
1: up. I'm like, oh, Isaiah, fantastic stuff. But I want so to. Car- I think I you I will. want to.
0: I think you will. All right, so now I need to buy the book. All of our listeners need to buy the book. Where do they go? Where it's, can they find these books?
1: It's called Learning to Love Isaiah. Um, it's, it's published by Covenant uh, Communications, which also God Will Prevail is. So awesome. uh, going to Siegelbook.com is the best place. At least right now, it's it's still pre-order on the other websites like Desert Book or Amazon. It's not even on Amazon yet. I don't know why. Um, but you can get it like that if you go to Siegelbook.com. Awesome. Um, and you can get God Will Prevail there as well. Uh, And and I really do believe, and and I'm having people are coming and telling me that this is the ex- the experience they're having that they're getting Isaiah.
0: I can't wait and that they're I need Isaiah.
1: Carrie, I need this because yeah, we do like two and a half months worth of Isaiah and Come Follow Me, and yeah. then we're going to do a whole bunch more when we get the Book of Mormon. So well, this this will I, make people's lives better when we get there.
0: We're about to spend a whole lot of time with the Old Testament. Yeah, and I know that I have had the perception, and I assume I'm not alone in this of somewhat of a hierarchy of scriptural understanding. Mm. For me, it's Book of Mormon, yep. followed by Doctrine and Covenants, yep. followed by the New Testament, followed by almost anything else, followed by the Old Testament. Yeah, that's
1: right. And and for some people Pearl of Great Price just under the Old Testament and for some people just over it, but the Fair point. Yeah, and,
0: yeah. and 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 I tend to kind of and mistakenly lump those together a little bit in my understanding.
1: Yeah. Well, um, that's how we handle them as a church. So And and, and, yeah. and
0: so you're right. Absolutely, I think that we also, and again, I don't want to say we. I want to speak for myself. Yeah, but it's, it's generally easy true for me to say, well, it's mostly you know law of Moses stuff, and yeah. the stuff I, I the stuff I need is elsewhere anyway. Yeah.
1: So now Give you're going to make me mad. See, <laughs> this is good. Yeah.
0: I need to hear the Carrie Mulestein. Here's why. The Old Testament is so important to set us on the right path All right. for Come Follow Me this year.
1: Uh, and and this could be a five-hour long podcast, but but sure. I'll give you a shorter version. That so, would be great. So a couple of things. Um, one, I mean, this is foundational. Every other book of Scripture presupposes you understand the Old Testament. Mm. And if you don't, you're not understanding them the way you should. I can't tell you, when I teach Book of Mormon or New Testament, and even Doctrine and Covenants, but especially Book of Mormon. I can't tell you how many times when my students say, okay, well, well, I don't get this. Explain this to me. I say, well, if you'd taken an Old Testament class, you get to get this, right? And I tell them at the beginning, you're going to get sick of me saying this. And by the end, all I have to do is say, well, and they say, if we'd taken an Old Testament <laughs> class. Right? I love it. Um, because honestly, if you understand the Old Testament, you will exponentially understand the Book of Mormon better. That's a great um, point. Part of that is because of the Abrahamic Covenant. It it permeates every other book of Scripture, and the scriptural authors don't say, I'm talking about the Abrahamic Covenant here. They assume you're familiar with it. And unless you're not, and you become most familiar with it in the Old Testament and the Pearl of Great Price, um, if you're not, you're just missing out on all sorts of things. It's one of the keys to understanding Isaiah, by the way. Mm. Isaiah is talking about the Abrahamic Covenant all over the place, and if you don't get it, you're not getting Isaiah, but you're also not getting Nephi, Jacob, or Christ. Uh, by the way, Christ's teaching in, in Third Nephi is talking about the Abrahamic covenant all over the place. Okay. And he's using Isaiah to do it. Um, right. So those are, are two of the reasons, but let me tell you the other two that I, th- I think you'll find surprising. Um, I, I honestly mean this, and I've written a book to back it up, but it's out of print. But uh, I do not think you will see God's mercy and love on display anywhere as as prominently and as profoundly as in the Old Testament. Um, now, we, we struggle to see it there, but it's partially because people have taught us not to see it there. And so we selectively read. We choose to ignore parts of the New Testament that where Christ is being pretty stern and the end of the story where Jerusalem is destroyed and Jews are killed. Um, and we tend to, to ignore the merciful parts of the, the Old Testament and skip the part of the story where God, he's going to scatter people or, or destroy the city, but then the next thing is, and I will bring you back, and I will heal you, and I will help you, and so on. So I think God's mercy and and love wow. are on display yeah. there more powerfully than anywhere. Um, and finally, and I'll tell you this, and anyone who teaches Old Testament will agree with me, and uh, those who haven't will say, huh? I end up, if I'm just faithful when I teach and I'm faithful to the text, okay, here's what the text is talking about. Let's spend this much time on this and this much time on this and this much time on this because that's what the text talks about. I'll talk about the atonement more in the Old Testament than I will in the New Testament. Wow. The atonement is taught more, especially in the Gospels. So Paul talks about the atonement quite a bit, but I still think even than Paul. The, the atonement is taught more in the Old Testament than it is in the Gospels, and and really in the entire New Testament. It's all over the place in there. Um, and Joseph Smith absolutely felt like we were extending a, a little bit the New Testament church, but really the Old Testament church that he saw the New Testament church as being kind of an appendage of, right? It's just a small continuation of, but he was connecting us to that Old Testament world. So tell us about your new book. Okay. Uh, I'm happy to. So, and it and it ties in well with this whole leading into the Old Testament uh, theme because the f- the first thing we're going to start to do is read the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham. A lot of people don't understand what the Book of Abraham is, how we got it. Some people have questions about it. It's it's. I think if you study it and all the issues surrounding it carefully, it, it enhances your faith. But some people struggle. Uh, so this is another one of those things where people felt like I don't know what to make of this. That I thought I can help with this. So. I have this book coming out uh, called Let's Talk About the Book of Abraham. It comes out in January um, that that goes through both the ancient history of it, the, the history of Abraham, the history of the guys whose papyri Joseph Smith ended up with, the history, the story of how Joseph Smith gets it, questions people have about translation. It doesn't match what Egyptologists say. But also a chapter that goes through here, the doctrines we get mm. from it. And the doctrines especially of um, the Abrahamic covenant and pre and premortality – um, and and God's love for us and His desire to connect with us uh, that are in the Book of Abraham really fittingly frame the your whole study of the Old Testament. So if you'll understand that um, and and couple it with those things we've just been talking about about understanding the the uh, Old Testament, uh, those two things together, understanding mm. the book of Abraham, understanding kind of the Old Testament in general, I think will open up the Old Testament for people in a way. I, I'm excited for this Come Follow Me year. I think people are going to love the Old Testament in a way that they, and understand it in a way that they haven't before. And that's what I want. That's, that's what I'm all about.
0: I cannot wait. And we'll have your podcast, we've got your books, and I just... I have this new excitement. I did not wake up this morning excited about uh. Old Testament, and if I'm being honest, someone mentioned it in sacrament meeting on Sunday, and I thought, okay, gotta get ready. It's uh. Old Testament time, and now I'm looking at it very differently. And I think that's a gift that you're bringing to us. So I, I hope so. That's that's awesome. what I'm
1: trying to do is help people. I've also got a little website to, where I just put resources together for people who are. So it's called mm. OutOfTheDust.org. Wow. And that's the idea, is to just, you know, I know this feels like dusty stuff to people, but I'm trying to, you know, if people want to understand the tabernacle, here are some resources and things. I'm just trying to help people understand and appreciate this. So they can also go to outofthedust.org.
0: You're doing work that not a lot of people can. So I think it's (laughs) phenomenal. We're going to wrap things up with the question we ask all of our guests, and that is, what does being a member of the church mean to you?
1: hmm. Well, the short answer is everything. Um, in all honesty, I cannot think of any aspect of life that is not uh, affected uh, by uh, and filtered through my understanding of and appreciation for the gospel. So my, my family and my marriage, which is kind of the core part of who I am, right, absolutely at its rock core is affected by the gospel. My outlook on life, both when hard things happen and I'll tell you what as as a, a parent and you're probably getting yeah. to the same stage as me where I'm getting uh I only have two teenagers left at home and four who are now adults kind of mm-hmm. doing their own thing that's harder I thought I was it was exhausting when they were little kids and I couldn't get any sleep but <laughs> uh but at least you could do something about it then now it's emotionally exhausting cuz you can't do stuff about it but uh but I pray right and that's that's my solace is that I can pray and and uh We've seen miracles, health miracles, emotional health miracles. Um, uh, in my in my job, um, I've seen miracles. Uh, so maybe that's maybe that's what it means. If I were going to say what what being a member of the church means to me, it means I don't have to have. Uh, I don't feel anxious. Uh, I don't feel nervous or worried. I am happy and confident because I know that all of the stuff I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do the way God wants. I'm not succeeding all the time, but I'm trying. I'm giving it my best shot. Mm. And because of that, I know that we have a God who is all-powerful, meaning we have a God of miracles. And whatever miracles need to happen will happen, and things are going to work out. I'm just not worried. Things are going to work out Mm. because we have a, a God who sent his son, and they will bring about whatever miracles we need to just have a great life here and in this life, but especially in in the next life. He is a
0: husband and a father and the director of the BYU-Egypt Excavation Project, and I'm not going to go through all of your other incredible titles.
1: Good, I was starting to fall asleep again.
0: But he is (laughs) is certainly an expert in all things uh, antiquities as well as early scripture, and this has just been absolutely fascinating. Kerry Muelstein, thank you for sharing your latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Well, thank you. And my special thanks to my new friend, Carrie Muhlstein. Wasn't he just amazing? Carrie left me with a real excitement to study the Old Testament and uh, just think he's a brilliant man doing incredible work. Thank you so much, Carrie. This week in my Latter day Life, I did something that I didn't do last year, but I had done every year. For more than 20 years, and that's that this past week was the Consumer Electronics down in Las Vegas. And I have attended it, like I said, every year for more than 20 years. Now, last year, they didn't hold the show because of the pandemic, but this year they decided to move forward with it. And normally, it's a long week for me. The show is uh, several days long. It's at the convention center. We usually have a booth, and uh, I have to stand there all day and lots of handshaking, but also lots of hugs and being able to see customers and friends and and competitors who have become friends and former co-workers. And it's the big event. It's one of the largest trade shows in Las Vegas. And I have mixed emotions about it because it is really tiring and I tend to complain a lot about it. But also getting to see all these incredible people is just awesome. And this year, we decided to go go forward. We were going to do our booth everything was great. And then a few weeks ago, uh, we started getting calls from customers uh, saying that they weren't going to come because of the new variant. They had decided not to come or some of their staff had gotten sick and so they just weren't coming. And we started seeing more and more appointments cancel. And eventually so many appointments had canceled that we canceled our booth on the show floor and decided just to rent an Airbnb and to meet people at our house. And I'll tell you, the last two weeks, the timing could not have been worse. Because the last two weeks before the actual show started, I felt like every single day I had customers who were canceling. So we started scaling back. We normally take about 15 people. We ended up with about five of us going. And it just felt like, why are we even doing this? There were so few people going. And I really kind of had a bad attitude. I wanted us to cancel. And we were driving down to Las Vegas, It's about a, a six-hour drive from my house. and I really was not in a good headspace for it. And then we got there and I saw my coworkers and the owners of the company, who are all dear friends of mine. and it was so great to be with them and to have time and to bond with them. And then customers started coming over, and we went out to dinner with some customers and just getting together and seeing faces I hadn't seen in years. Uh, was just wonderful. And it just reminded me that the connections with people are what matters most in my career. It's the part of the career of sales that I really love is these customers have become dear friends. It's rarely handshakes. It's usually hugs. And it's rarely, how's your family? It's usually me asking, how's Tom doing? Or how's Jennifer doing? These are people I know. They've become friends of mine. And I think sometimes we're quick to write off, oh, they're just a work friend, or they're just a neighbor I don't know that well, or a member of the stake I may not know very well. But the connections and the bonds that we have with people really are important. That's one of the tolls that the pandemic has taken. But I think the more we find ways to connect with people and, and really keep those meaningful relationships, it may not be in the way we've always done it or in the way we particularly want to do it. But it really does matter. And I think next year, I I hope, I definitely don't predict anymore with this pandemic. But I hope next year that we're back to standing on the uh, trade show floor with me complaining about how long the show is, complaining about how tired I am. Uh, but maybe I'll complain slightly less because I'll remember how important these people are to me. And that's what's happening this week in my latter day life. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. We really appreciate it. The Latter-day Lives podcast was produced by Gene Chittister, social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier, and I think that's all we've got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening.